Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm going to fix it. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you that we can once again gather in your name and hear your word. For in it, there is life. It's a light by which we can walk this dark and dreary world sometimes. You give us hope. I pray that you would take your word this morning, apply it to every heart, every situation, and uh, that you would be glorified through it. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. If it's been so long since we have been together, let's do a quick review. If you recall, the last time that we were together... Absalom was left hanging in a tree and eventually killed by Joab and his men. But remember, David had been very precise in his instructions that they would deal gently with Absalom for David's sake. But instead of gently, they stuck a bunch of lances in him, killing him. So now the scene is set for our passage today. David has no idea of what has become of the battle or his son. And so put yourself in the place of David this morning. Imagine pacing the floors and constantly looking out the window to hopefully see a runner coming with news of the battle. And more importantly to David, the condition and welfare of his son. This is where we pick up in verse 19. Then a high mass the son of Zadok said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Ahimaaz must have been a well-known runner, and so he immediately volunteered to take this news to the king some three miles away. But as enthusiastic as the young man was, he didn't realize what he was asking. For David had been known in the past to take out his anger and sorrow on the messengers that were sent to him. And Joab knew his king very well, and he knew that the report of Absalom's death must be conveyed with compassion and skill and a great deal of tact. And tact is always a very important element when delivering any kind of important news. Pastor Greg Laurie tells a story about a barber who went to attend a meeting one night where the speaker was stressing the need to share Christ with others. The barber was determined that after the meeting that he would share Jesus with the first customer he met in the chair that next morning. 
Well, the next morning, after the customer had been seated and the apron was tucked around his neck, the barber began to sharpen his razor with great vigor. Testing the edge, he turned to the man in the chair and blurted out a bit nervously, Friend, are you ready to die and meet God? Lori says, the man looked at the razor horrified and then fled out the door, apron and all. In that case, the barber had the right idea. He just needed to use a little tact. In our account this morning, the war is over and the rebellion has ended. All that remained for Joab to do was to notify the king and return him safely back to Jerusalem. But this would be a bittersweet victory for David. After all, when the enemy is your own son, there can be no triumph or celebration. So he says to Ahimaaz, You won't carry the news today because the king's son is dead. Joab knows that the price that David had to pay and that he has given his only or his begotten son is going to be immensely painful to David. And so he turns to this Gentile Ethiopian and dispatches him with the news to tell David. Perhaps to keep a high mass safe, Joab selected a person known only as the Cushite, who was possibly even one of his own servants. I guess the thinking was, better that a foreign servant be slain than a son of a Jewish priest. But what is interesting here is a Gentile is going to carry the message instead of a Jew. Why? Because the message about the death of the king's son is one that they don't want to carry. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what has happened in church history where the message of the cross and the death of the king's son is shunned by the Jew? And so, like Joab, God sits them down and has the Gentile carry the message instead. And what is the purpose of this? Romans 11.11 says, and this is Paul speaking of his fellow Jews, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Or to put it in context of our passage, God set the Jews down and told us to run instead. Should that make us boastful? No, because Paul also warns us, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise <clears throat> excuse me, in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all of Israel shall be saved. But until that day, we need to keep running with that message. Verse 22, please. Well, I guess you're not really doing that, are you? So I'm just talking to myself. <clears throat> Verse 22 for me. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. 
Joab asked Ahimez one question that I would like to dissect a little bit this morning, and it is this. Why will you run since you have no news ready? Or we could accurately retranslate it and say, why do you want to run if you don't have anything to say? A high mass reminds us of some people who want to be important but have nothing much to say. It's what the Bible calls zeal without knowledge. And we need both of those to be truly effective. If you have zeal but no knowledge, you can end up making mistakes and hurting people through your misguided zeal. But if you have abundant knowledge and no zeal, you can spend your life sitting in an ivory tower, puffing on a pipe, and full of Bible knowledge, but have no desire to actually use that knowledge to help others. We need both the light of knowledge and the heat of zeal. We don't want to be all light and no heat, or all heat and no light. Now, it should go without saying that we ought to be zealous for the Word of God and for truth. There are certain things in life that are non-negotiable. There are certain hills that are big enough to die upon. But there is a zeal that is divisive, destructive, and deadly. It divides homes and it divides churches. This misguided zeal finds an error and perpetuates it or takes a principle and then take that to the extreme. A zealot has been described as someone who, having lost sight of his goal, now doubles his speed. Fanaticism takes a good thing and distorts it. And if you think about it, principles are like tools. For instance, you can use a hammer to build a house, or you can beat someone to death with that same hammer. Anything taken to an extreme can become a bad thing. And sadly, the cause of Christ has been deeply hurt by often, by often well-meaning people with their misguided zeal. Case in point, Peter's response to his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration is an illustration of misguided zeal in the area of doctrine. Remember when he said, let us build three tabernacles. I can almost imagine his eyes as wide as saucers when he said, one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Now, Peter must have thought this was an appropriate gesture of a doctrinally sound faith, but he couldn't have been further from the truth. His motive is to be commended, but his theology was way off target. In his religious zeal, he actually demoted Christ, the Son of God, to the mere level of men. And God the Father had to remove Moses and Elijah from Peter's vision and speak audibly from the cloud in order to get Peter's thinking back right on the, the right back on the right theological track. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, although the idea of building three shrines to commemorate this event certainly involved commitment and zeal, it was misguided zeal. Did Peter learn his lesson? Apparently, it took a while for old Pete. 
Because Peter's defense of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane is another occasion on which the Apostle Peter illustrated zeal without knowledge. In this case, it was misguided zeal in the area of means or method. When Peter cut off the high priest's right ear of his servant, he was zealously committed to defending the Lord. He probably was aiming to cut the servant's head off, but in the excitement and the emotion of the moment, he missed and only got an ear. This is why you don't give fishermen swords. And so Jesus has to do a Mr. Potato Head thing and reattach the poor guy's ear. And did you know that was the last miracle that Jesus performed before he died? It was the healing of somebody that one of his disciples had hurt out of misguided zeal. I find that telling. Even so, Peter's intention was to defend the Lord and his master at all costs, even to death. Perhaps Peter wanted to prove that he meant what he really said in the upper room. In any case, Peter showed a lot of courage and religious zeal, but once again, it was misguided zeal. Now back to our story. After the Cushite left, a high mass continued to annoy Joab and ask for permission to run. But there was nothing to add, good or bad, to the news, so why run? Why run? And weary of hearing the young man's pleas, Joab finally gave him permission to go. Joe is probably thinking, hey, easy on the caffeine there, buddy. I mean, this guy's all amped up. It's like he's chasing coffee with Red Bulls. He's kind of like the Old Testament version of Forrest Gump. He just knew that he had to run. This guy is intent on getting his way no matter what the cost. If you would have been my parents, you would have known what this is like. As a boy, if I wanted something bad enough, I was absolutely relentless in my pursuit of it. I would bug my poor parents without mercy. And it would often end with me saying this, Please, 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 if you do this, I will never ask for anything else again, ever. And I ask you, what 10-year-old boy doesn't need a flamethrower? Especially with a name like Mean Little Billy, but I digress. If I would have been a high man, I can imagine my mother saying, Fine, go already. If you break both your legs, don't come running back to me crying. We're going to see that Ahimaaz was a young man without a real message or the ability to convey, convey that message in the right way. Now, I imagine that as the Cushite ran, he meditated on how to tell King David the news that his son had died. I mean, once again, what's the sense in running if you don't know how to share the news? We do see in verse 23 that he actually outran the Cushite. Little known fact. One ancient Chaldean manuscript says that as he ran past him, he actually stuck out his tongue. That's not true. And so this Jew now passes up this Gentile with news about the death of a king's son. Now why would I bring that out? I find this fascinating. Remember, the first runner is an Ethiopian Cushite. In Acts chapter 8, we are introduced to another Ethiopian who is a eunuch. 
He is leaving to go back home in his carriage, and what happens? Somebody runs up and passes him, and like a high mass, it's another Jew named Philip. And do you know what the Ethiopian is reading? The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53, which also speaks about the death of a king's son. Only in that case, it is the king of the universe. I have to tell you, I love how God weaves the Old and New Testament together in a tapestry of truth to prove that the Bible is no ordinary book. Verse 24 says, Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate, to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running along. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called the gatekeeper and said, There is another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first was like the running of a high mass, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Now, had there been a group of men running to the castle, David would have known his troops had been defeated and were now running for their lives. Two men, however, signal not defeat, but news. We see in verse 27 that it's obvious that a high mass is known for his running, and it could be one of two things. Either he did it so much that people just came to expect it. So apparently this kid ran a lot to the, degree, to the degree that people could recognize him. People would wake up, peek out of their curtain and say, Hey, look, Mildred, there that boy goes. Mildred's a good Jewish name, isn't it? Or maybe he just had a funky way of running. Maybe it was his gait or he pumped his arms the wrong way. I don't know. You guys are Bible scholars. You work it out. The point is people knew it was him. It reminded me of another verse in 2 Kings where it says, The watchman reported, he came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Furiously is a nice and polite way of saying crazy. I've ridden with some of you. It's sad you didn't live back then. You could have made it in the Bible. But notice what David says. He is a good man and he also comes with good news. And I think this is pitiful in a way. It's obvious that the character of the messenger has nothing to do with the contents of the message. But David was grasping for any straw of hope available. Once again, at this point, David is far more a father than he is a king. Verse 28 says, and a high mass called out and said to the king, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? A high mass answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. A high mass once again reminds me of some other people. Every now and then as I channel surf, I'll come across certain, and I, I use this term loosely, preachers. 
And they are gesturing and sweating and putting on quite a show. But a lot of times they're not actually saying anything. It's like professional wrestling. You know it's fake, but it's still fun to watch sometimes. But they're sucking wind like crazy, and I think, wow, that man is running hard. No message and no direction, but they sure are running. Now, a high mass had run with all his might. He had come in first because of his zeal, but when he arrived at the city gate, he did not deliver the full message. He did deliver the message of victory, but he did not deliver the other message, the message of judgment. He told David his armies had won the battle, but he did not tell him the price that had to be paid for that was the death of his son. Simply put, a high mass refused to deliver the whole truth. This is happening in churches across America today. The failure to deliver the full message to the world is what one writer has called the evangelical dilemma. We proclaim the message of victory, but often fail to explain the price which must be paid for that victory. We must add this important word. There is no salvation without repentance. It's one thing to agree that we are sinners. It's another thing to be willing to give up our sin. It's one thing to acknowledge that we're going in the wrong direction. It's another thing to turn from that direction and go the right way of Christ. A young boy was scoldingly asked by his mother one morning, Aren't you ashamed to be in bed past noon? To which the boy answered, Yes, I am ashamed, but I'd rather be ashamed than to get up. Like that, many people are ashamed of their sins, ashamed of what they are, ashamed of what they have done, but they would rather be ashamed than to give these things up. But it takes more than shame to be saved. It takes repentance. If we say we want to be changed or not willing to turn from our sin, we are only fooling ourselves. There is no salvation without repentance. A high mass is a messenger who refuses to deliver the full message because he does not want to deliver any type of bad news. He's the kind of messenger who only wants to deliver what he knows will be good for the listener, and so he will never deliver truth that is unpopular. He reminds me of Joel Olstein, who when being interviewed by Larry King was asked why he doesn't talk about sin, repentance, hell, judgment, or anything like that. Olstein's reply was, well, God has called me to deliver a positive message. What is the result of doing that in our culture? He has the largest church in America. Why? Because in the last days, people will gather around them messengers who tell them what, only what they want to hear because they have itching ears. It's the Old Testament version of Isaiah 30.10, where the people said, Give us no more visions of what is right, but instead prophesy to us smooth things. Like Olstein, you might have a big church and a real nice smile, but listen, if you can't deliver God's message, whatever the reaction to the listener 
then do us all a favor and don't pretend to be a messenger because the stakes are far too high. Verse 31. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who would rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. Someone has defined tact as the art of making a point without making an enemy. And the Cushite had tact. But even with that, upon hearing the news of his son's death, the king is shaken. This is the picture of a mother holding her son shot in a gangland slain. It's the picture of a brother holding a sister ripped apart by a terrorist bomb. The Hebrew word is ragaz. It means to quake, shake, or shudder. We would probably use the word convulse. It has the idea of literally trembling. David was greatly distressed and grieved. Why is that? I think one reason is that when David's child born by Bathsheba died after seven days, we're told that David didn't weep. He simply said, He cannot be with me, but I will one day be with him. I believe David had a different understanding here. He knew he wasn't going to meet Absalom in heaven. He knew that Absalom was a rebellious and unregenerate son. I believe David knew that Absalom was lost for all eternity and it broke his heart. David's reaction to this news is described in one of the most moving verses in the entire Bible where he says, O my son Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. Does that remind you of someone else who said from the cross, My God, my God. One old commentator said, David would protect the guilty, God would bruise the innocent. David would give up innocent men so an evil son could live. God would give up an innocent son so evil men could live. Remarkably, David's helpless cry anticipated a solution that would one day be provided. Would I have died instead of you wept, David? I do not imagine that David understood the significance of these words. However, when the greater son of David eventually came, he came to die instead of his enemies, a ransom for the many. The gospel of Christ is news of justice and love. Justice satisfied by the one who loved us, so that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. David's tears reveal a broken heart of a father. Speaking about David's sorrow, Charles Spurgeon wrote, It would be wise to sympathize as far as we can than to set in judgment upon a case which has never been our own. 
Once again, we see the heart of God revealed in David. For Christ died for us when we were sinners and living as enemies of God. And David would have died for Absalom, but Jesus actually did die for us as an enemy. As we close, I ask you, are you in a high mass or are you a Cushite? Are you one who is zealous and eager but lacks a full message? The Bible warns us about having zeal without knowledge, about people who may be zealous to serve the Lord, but they lack maturity in him. This is why it is so important to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, so that we do have something to say. What is the message that the Lord has given you this morning? If you are doubtful, I encourage you to seek him for clarity of vision so that you would know precisely what he is calling you to do. This is a race that we all must run in. And Father, that is the desire of our heart, and where that is not the desire, I pray you would make that the desire of our heart. Let us run for you, Lord. But let us run with a message and the ability to convey it with tact, love, and conviction. Wherever we're at this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would work in each individual heart represented here, starting with mine. Do the work that you need to do, Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen.